everybody. Welcome back to The Undiscovered You, a podcast for people who feel like they have so much more to offer, but are somehow stuck where they are. I'm your host, Kimberly Johnston, and this season, we'll be speaking all about the dream catchers. I'm extremely excited to have Diane Hunwin Wakely with me today. Diane is a retired professional dancer. She's the mother of two, and she's currently pursuing her third profession as a grandmother. <laughs> Hi, Di, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing so well. So you were saying before we started that actually you think that's just as tiring. Being a full-time grandmother is just as tiring as being a professional dancer. Oh, absolutely. I long for lying down in the darkened room after she's gone. She's like a little whirlwind, but I wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> So, Diane, part of what we're doing in this season is talking to people who pursued a dream that many have had and few have been very successful at following, which is why I call it the dream catchers. And you've had such a life in terms of being a professional ballet dancer um, in, in years gone by, as you have you told me beforehand. But what I would love to hear is your story. So tell me a bit about where you were born, where you grew up and how you got interested in dance. Okay, well, I was born um, in the north of England, Kingston-upon-Hull, which is in, was East Yorkshire back in the day, in 1948. Um, and my parents were ballroom dance teachers. My mother met my, she was the ballroom teacher first. She met my father, who was suggested after the war that he took up ballroom dancing to help get back integrated into society and uh, having been a prisoner of war for so long. So that's how they met. And so for my early life, I was surrounded by ballroom dance, which I eventually took up. Um, my mother was always very interested in dance. And I think she took me when I was about two, two and a half to ballet classes. But being tiny, I didn't like it because the big girls kept picking me up. So that was a that was a no-go. <laughs> that was to one side. And, and I just continued with the ballroom dancing, doing getting medals for that, various things. And I think I must have been about eight. And I just sort of said to my mother one day, I'd like to go back to doing some ballet. And that was the start of this journey without really knowing how she was going to do it. My mother took me on two buses across town to this a couple of dancing sisters, one who played the piano and one who taught the ballet called the Mrs. Skins School of Dance. <laughs> um, but they were dear ladies um, and were passionate about their little charges and it was why that's why I had my early years of dancing and you know from the age of eight that was my focus I used to go to ballet on a Saturday afternoon and um, a Wednesday evening and that was that was my life in between my school days. So twice a week during the week at age eight going to do lessons how, how long were these lessons how long did they usually take? Probably only about an hour. But, and, yeah. and did you did you dance all the time in between when you were home? Were you just was it impossible to get your shoes off of you? It was. I think I wore holes in the carpet. I know it sounds like a cliche, but I really did. I was always prancing around. Music went on, off I went, you know. <laughs> I think they despaired of me, you know. <laughs> Love it. And the the dance instructors that you had, it sounds like they were a sister pair. Did they have professional dance experience or did they just, was it the closest studio in town? What was the story with how you chose the person to instruct you? I don't know. My mother had obviously heard about them and without really knowing, you know, we call it sort of divine intervention because without really knowing where she was going, she set off in search of these, these sisters through reputation. She could never explain why. It was just one of those things. Hilda Skins played the piano and Phyllis taught the dancing. But they did have knowledge of, of the um, Royal Academy of Dance syllabus. So they were teaching to the Lee exams. So we did um, ballet exams uh, every year and it sort of worked through. So it wasn't just a question of going for a Saturday hop. There was a purpose mm -hmm. behind their teaching. Um, and they had a very good reputation and turned out some, you know, quite a few people, dancers that went into full-time dancing um so and two of which were in the same company as, as myself so they didn't do too badly that's <laughs> amazing <challenges> really. <laughs> and 
and I think I think that's really important is when you're when you're finding tutelage and whatever you want to pursue, find someone who's a credible tutor. I know that sounds like a very obvious statement, but if you have a child who just wants to run around in a tutu and cannot like two left feet child, let them go somewhere that's fun where they can run around and be in a tutu and there's no structure. But if you want your child to actually see what ballet is all about or what, you know, any kind of dance or acting or anything's about and they want you want them to train in that art, then yes. get them get them good trainers. I think that's one of the things that's that's really important. Get yourself a good trainer if you're shifting into something, you know, go for somebody who knows what they're doing or if you just want to have a little fun, go have some fun. But I think right. that's I think that that differentiator is really important when you're sticking someone in it because ballet as a child running around in a tutu is a lot of fun. Mm. Ballet when you're training for RAD exams, the Royal Academy of Dance for those um, American listeners, when you're training for those exams, you're doing a lot of plies. You're doing a lot of bar work. You're doing a lot of boring stuff that is is actually just training and training you up for it. Absolutely. And it, it, interestingly enough, you know, a lot of people said to me when I did stop, oh, you didn't want to go and teach then. And I said, and I'd done teaching exams earlier on in my, when I came down to London, but that's further on in the story. Um, but it's a tremendous responsibility with young children, with, with their bodies when they're emerging. You know, you've got to be very careful and you've got to be as passionate to teach as you have to dance. Mm. It's just as important because for the very fact that you said, you know, you're, you're training them up. It's got to be correct. If those people are going to go on to somewhere and they want to, you've got to get it right. And I wasn't sure I was in the right frame of mind to be able to do that. Um, and, and equally, there are plenty of people around. Like you say, you can go let, let little ones dance around in a tutu and it doesn't matter. And they perform a little concert and they get it out of their system and they have fun. And hey, that's, that's good. It's exercise. It's lovely. And why not? But uh, I just felt it wasn't the road I wanted to go down for, for that reason. I think that's so that's so mature in itself, because a lot of times, you know, we'll get onto this as well. But when when you are a dancer, it has a shelf life. And a lot of people, if they want to continue in the world of dance, the only way to do that is you know, well, I mean, you can be the board of the, you know, you can be in the board of the ballet if you're so lucky. Um, but also as being a teacher, you know, is something is, is bringing that back and actually being a teacher. And I think the maturity of saying, I don't want to do that. And we talk about this a lot with my listeners is knowing what you don't want to do is as important as knowing what you do want to do. Yes, absolutely. Yes. I mean, there's nothing worse than than tackling something that your heart isn't in it. Mm, and you absolutely. do, you don't actually do a very good job. Um, it's like doing something indoors. If your heart isn't in it, <laughs> you know, it doesn't get done properly. And <laughs> story of my life now. Um, but uh, it's in, it, it is important that, that you can give yourself a hundred percent. If it's not for you, then you have to walk away from it and find something else. But, and was, were there any times when you were, I mean, you started this at eight years old and we'll, we'll get on to the rest of your story in a moment, but were there times when you asked your mom to to stop where you wanted to walk away? No, no, not at all. In fact, not until I had actually come down to London and been down in London for a term, I got tremendously homesick. Mm. That was the only time when my parents came down and I can remember them walking through the, the little gardens next to the Houses of Parliament and looking across the river at the Festival Hall. And my father saying to me, that is what you've always wanted. We can take you back with us and no one will think any the less of you. But that was your dream. And really, it is up, up to you. And, you know, so I was sobbing my heart out. Mm. And just saying that and I, and I just said, I'll stay. And, you know, the, the homesick lessened, the second term went all right, and the rest is history. But it was that defining moment. This is your choice. We will take you backwards. We won't think any the less of you because you've, you've tried and you didn't. But wouldn't it be a pity you gave it up just because of homesickness when that over there was your goal? Mm. So. 
It's such a beautiful visual die. And I think for our listeners, it's also when you're trying to achieve any goal in life, there is that point of tension. There's that point where you cry. You're like, this is hard. I'm not making the money I thought I was going to make. I'm not making the contacts I thought I was going to make. I'm not progressing the way I thought I was going to progress. Or you move and you're homesick or you, you know, you move to a new country and you're trying to get settled. And, you know, when you're pursuing those dreams, I think it's so important to know that a lot of times you'll come to that crossroads and you have a decision to make and you could have gone home. And again, as you said, there's nothing wrong with that, but then you would have spent the rest of your life knowing you didn't try. And so it's while you're, well, yeah, it wasn't, it's that what if it's that what if, and if you can live with, I think that is probably one of my big takeaways with life is if you can live with the what if, and you can let it go and you want to go back or go sideways or go in a different direction, fine. If you know, you will not be able to live with that. What if pursue, just keep pushing, keep trying to get over that hump. And, you know, if it's, if it's to the detriment of your family and you're completely broke and you're going, you know, bankrupt and you're losing your house, you know, obviously there's a time to call stumps, but if it's, if it's just that pain point, push through the pain point to get to the goal. Cause this is how you become a dream catcher. That's one of the things as you push through that pain point. That's right. Absolutely. Yes. So let's come back. We're eight years old. We've started, we're up in Yorkshire. Um, you're at the sisters ballet studio. Talk to me how you got from there to London. What did that look like? What were your training schedules? So you said you were doing Wednesday and Saturday to start off with what happened with that? Well, along with this this training, um, we used to have sort of little festivals around the country that um, used to be held in, oddly enough, in various seaside towns. You know, on the end of a pier, you'd, there would be a you know a concert or a show, and they would be in ballet, um, character dancing, or anything like that, um, tap dancing, and we would be entered in just to get some experience. So, you know, my mother would be sewing costumes, national costumes. I did a Hungarian dance and um, I, I never did tap, but, uh, and, and I had to have a tutu made. So there was that kind of experience of dancing in front of uh, an audience really. And and you were graded and got a certificate or, if you, uh, or a cup if you were really lucky, you know. Um, and, you know, you had good judges who knew what they were talking about, who would give a good critique of what your work was. So mm-hmm. that, that was all character building, so destroying. But it gave you a, a little hint of what was going to happen late, later on down the line. Um, but as I got older, I kept on going to these couple of times a week. Um, I, m- my mother, again, I mean, bless her, really, had read somewhere about... Um, there was an English dancer called Phyllis Bedells, and she was one of the first British ballerinas. And she had a little ballet school in North London, in Kilburn, and she did summer schools you know, a week to go down and just do ballet with her and, and bring in people. And so my, my mother enrolled me in one of these. Mm. And so I spent a week down with Phyllis and Phyllis Bedells and did my class and everything. And she would take a number of pupils, half a dozen pupils, um, to study with her full time at the end of our uh, formal education. And I must have been 15. It must have been the summer I was I was 15 and I was 16 in the December. And in those days, you could leave our schooling system um you didn't have to wait until the September you could leave as soon as you turn 16 you're out of there I was 16 on the 26th of December and by the 5th of January I was in London staying with Phyllis Biddell studying ballet full-time and that was my first leave from home and that's that's the the big homesick because the first term it's all exciting and but then the realism, I was far away from home. I didn't have brothers and sisters. Mm. I was very close to my parents. Um, and that hit hard. Um, mm. But stuck it out. And um, yes, from there, I was able to make the move to the World Body Upper School. Um, I think I was with Phyllis Bedells for a couple of years. Um, and then went to the upper school. And uh, yes, that was in Talgarth Road. Yes. Yes. So, I, I mean, once I'd left home, that was it. I never really went back home to live. I'm, I'm a naturalised southerner now, my father called me. 
<laughs> northern girl. <laughs> a naturalized Southerner. I like that. And for those who don't know geography of the UK as well as others, um, Yorkshire to London, how long, how big is that distance if you're driving, let's say? If you're driving, it's about 200 miles. Okay. All right. So, to, I mean, it is far enough. Yeah, it's far enough. <laughs> It's far enough. It's not not huge distance, but it, it is for us. Yes, that's not. Yeah, but it wasn't as good then. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like, going on a steam train, so that's you know we are getting back a bit. <laughs> that's oh, that sounds it sounds romantic looking back, but I'm sure that being on a nice air conditioned high speed train is much more pleasant. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Um, so talk to me about your schedule. So you moved down, you did this, you did this week summer school, um, and you know, you're, you're not putting it out there, but I will there. She saw something in you. You said she chose some, some certain people. So kind of going back, actually, let's, let's go back to when you did the, the seaside stints, you said you got some feedback. Was the feedback you were getting from people that, wow, she's a very gifted dancer. Was this kind of something that was happening or was there, you would be good if you did X, Y, Z? What what was the feedback you were getting? No, it was it was a more general, um, very lyrical, beauty to the music, has nicely stretched feet or mm. pretty arm movements or, you know, various things like that. It wasn't quite as structured as when they do an arabesque, which is to raise the leg behind you, the leg should be straight and at such an angle. It wasn't as precise as that. Okay. But 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 still good feedback because you still need to have lovely arms. You still need to have pointed toes. So, um, you know, it wasn't quite so brutal as it might have got later on <laughs> in life. <laughs> In, but in general, did you kind of, did your mom and did you know, and your dad, because your dad was also a, a professional dancer, did did they know, did you guys know you were a good dancer? Is it something that you were naturally sort of gifted at? Because you started very young, but that doesn't necessarily mean you were good. No, not, nothing. I mean, I suppose all parents think their children are good at something. But um, I think my mother particularly was a strong the stronger influence my father didn't want his little girl to go to London at such a tender age and you know he he took that very hard mm. um but my mother was the of course she'll never come back this is where her future is mm. she wasn't she was a driving force but she's she's I think she thought there was something there although she would never say it to me this came out in conversation later she would never said it at the time she would have said to me, oh, you're talented, because I don't think it just wasn't in her nature to do that. It was just that you've got a good opportunity. And yes, I could dance and I had musicality. I had that, you know, that sense of that from ballroom days. So I think from that point of view, there was that sort of support mm. behind it. But it wasn't, nobody actually said to me, oh, you're, you're very talented. Mm. I don't recall anyone saying that. And I probably wouldn't have, I don't think I'd know what to have said at that point. I, I don't think I would have known what that actually meant at that point. Interesting. I'm so naive about that. It's strange, isn't it? I, I, no, I don't actually ever remember anyone saying that. Maybe I wasn't. Maybe I was just lucky. I don't know. <laughs> but what's incredibly interesting is um, there's some work done by a woman named Carol Dweck, and she talks about having a growth mindset and mm. it's something that she applies to children as well and what she says is with children it's really unhelpful to tell them that they're clever to tell them that they're talented to tell them that they have this natural innate ability to do what they're doing what's really good about it is acknowledging the effort and it's really good to acknowledge what they are putting into it. And also, whenever your children say, I'm rubbish at this, I can't do this, I can't, 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 there's no words. It's it's about using that growth mindset of I can't do this yet, or I haven't learned this yet. And it's all about that idea of not, not limiting yourself either by talent that is there or is not there, mm -hmm. or by brains that are there or not there or by limiting yourself from something you're not getting quite yet. And so it's interesting that in your story, it's not, you didn't have a whole bunch of people feeding into you being like, she's so talented, she's so talented, she's so talented. And that's what got you there. 
it was more people acknowledging, you know, nice pointy toes, nice, lovely arms, but you put in the hard work and people acknowledge that there was something there. You wouldn't have progressed otherwise. Like, let's just be frank. When you're 15, you went to London for that summer school. She would have said, thank you so much for coming, Diane. It's been a pleasure to meet you. Enjoy. Enjoy going back north. Have a nice life. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there were people mm, that said to my mother, shouldn't she be focusing on schoolwork? Mm. I mean, even at school, they said to, to my mother one day, they called her and said, we think Diane's doing too much dancing. Mm. And, you know, and not many people make it. And they actually said that to my mother. My mother said she's focused on what she wants. That's all she wants to do. And, you know, she's got to give it a shot. But that, that was, this came all out later on with my mother when she was telling me these conversations. But I think they'll recognise, you know, maybe I should go and carry on with my typing course and be a secretary somewhere because this was all very well when I was a little girl, but actually people like you don't actually go and become ballerinas. You don't become a dancer. And of course, you didn't get grants to go to ballet school. Oh, that's expensive. You know, in those days, you could get a grant to go to university and to college but nobody got a grant to go to ballet school. And my parents applied because my parents did not have much money uh, at all. Um, they scrimped and saved to send me to ballet school, you know, to my two little, little lessons. Um, but I can remember going to the whole city council and them saying to, her, to me, what, you know, what would happen if we didn't give you any money? And I said, well, my parents clearly can't afford to send me, but they will do their best. So, but you know, they they will they will do their best to support me because they know that I really want to go and it's my dream. Um, so, any money you can give me, I mean, I, I, I'm amazed at my forthrightness. At saying yes, that. I love it. Help, but my parents really and truly couldn't not really afford to send me, mm. and I, I got something like ten pounds a term to go down to mm. But I think I was one of the first in Hull to get a grant to go and study the arts, anything in the arts. It just was not, not done at that time. And That's now they have a, a thriving arts faculty up there now, which uh, had I been there, it goes back to what I was saying then, we'd only we'd had that uh, at, at that time when I was growing up. I would probably have stayed there and probably got a degree or something, which might not have led to being a dancer. Yeah. But I might have had a degree to teach. So, you know, that little... Not blip of not having the money meant I could pursue my dream in London, which I had to come to to actually carry on this quest for my career. Um, I mean, who knows? I might still be living up there. <laughs> you you know? never know. You never but know. I think what I think is so interesting about what you what you've just said is a couple of things. One is your mom protected you in a way because she wasn't sharing with you what the school was saying from what from what I just gathered you heard that from her later on and she knew that you had a dream and she helped you protect your dream and I think a lot of times when we don't have that individual board is one of the ways that we describe it you know it's your it's your people that are around you that support you that help guide you etc when they're not shielding you from that that can chink away at the dream and the dream is, if you think about the dream as a bubble, the bubble is really easy to pop. And I use that, that illustration of a bubble very intentionally. And the school can pop it because you're not doing your studies. You need to, you're, listen. And, and that, that also puts a seed of doubt in your mind because they're telling you, go be a secretary. You're not going to make it as a dancer, you know, or if someone's talking about your talent and they kind of discuss, you know, oh, well, I don't, does she actually have enough turnout? Is that? Is that something, you know, her turnout's not great. Boom, popped, gone. You get down there. Your dad says, you know, you're a little homesick. We'd love for you to come home, honey. You know, this is a big dream. You sure you want to spend this time here? Pop, you know, and it's like you had this lovely support system in your parents. And as you said, you know, your dad didn't want you to go. And you, and you know that you can recognize that now, but he wanted to support your bubble. He wanted to support your dream. And I think it's so important as people that are pursuing dreams or people that have let the dreams pop is to recognize, yes, not everybody makes it. Be realistic. Not every single person, not every child that does ballet is going to become a professional ballerina. But people do. Mm, mm, absolutely. Yeah. I think your single-mindedness, the fact that you said, 
you knew this is what you wanted to do. You know, was there, was there also, was there a time you wanted to quit? So you talked about, you talked about that time where you were homesick and you were there and otherwise, was there, was there other times when you wanted to quit? No, no. And I think, I think that's also probably a big signal is, is when you're little and you're doing ballet, a lot of times people do it and then they kind of get into the, it is, it is rigorous. Ballet is hard. And standing at the bar, as I said, is I, I thought I found it torturous because I love musical theater type dance. You're out in the middle and doing all the, you know, yes. big and like, but it's, it is a discipline and it is, it is a requirement of part of it. And so when you're doing that, if you're like this, I really don't like this. And I don't want to do it. You know, acknowledge that about yourself. And it doesn't mean you have to give up dance totally, but what else do you want to do? And it, same thing in life. If there's something that you don't like, for instance, you know, I, I talk often about being a lawyer and I really disliked doing contracts. I hated reviewing contracts. It just, I found it incredibly tedious and boring. Some people love it. They love tearing apart. They love building them up. They love finding the nuances and the language and all that kind of stuff. And I just, I, I could do it. I was fine at it. I just really didn't like it. And so I found other things in law that I could do that actually fulfilled me. And so it's that same idea is if it's something that you're pushing yourself through or other people are pushing you through, I think that's another one. Yes really acknowledge that because I think as a dream catcher, you've got to be all in your support bubble's got to be all in and you've got to just go for it. And you might not catch the dream, but you might. So you're in London, talk to us through. So you're in London, you're doing this amazing study course. And then you very simply just said, Oh, and then I went to the Royal Dance Academy. And so tell, tell us a little bit about what happened from there. Well, I joined the Royal Ballester Upper School, which was then in, um, it was the school now is at the Opera House, but it, in those days, the White Lodge in Richmond Park was the, the, the junior school and the wow. upper school was in, uh, in Hammersmith. And I joined there in 1966 and they kept me on. They wrote a nice report at the end of the, of the term saying, you know, we're very pleased with Diane, I wrote to my parents. Um, we're going to keep her on for another year. And in fact, Dame Lynette de Valois, who was who founded the Royal Ballet, she used to take the graduate class at the Royal Ballet School. Mm-hmm. And she chose me as one of her graduates. So at the bottom of this letter is, uh, we're keeping her on for a second year. Um, and we are pleased that Dame Lynette has chosen her to be one of her graduates. <gasps> so wow. Which was, you know, quite quite something in those days well I looking back it still is um um yes so I spent a year as a graduate and graduates um they Royal Valley School I think they still do them now so much has happened through since Covid I don't know whether they're still doing it but they now do a matinee they do a matinee at the Opera House okay. they but in in our day we used to do it in Holland Park in Kensington which was an outdoor stage and we would showcase our work. And that particular year, we were doing the second act of Giselle and um, other sort of, um, I think, sort of little bits, pardeurs and things. So it was a full programme. And I was chosen to do um, the lead in Giselle and was trained by Dame Lynette. Um, And so we performed all that. And from that, I got, accepted into the Royal Bali Touring Company. So, you know, this these things sort of sort of rapidly got I was I must have been 17, 18, I think. Mm. So we were moving on a pace. Um it was all quite uh, quite intense. Um and the interesting thing because we were doing Giselle, the Royal Academy of Dance wanted were doing a masterclass with um John Field, who was then the director of the Royal Pony Touring Company. And he was going to take this masterclass in front of uh, Royal Academy of Dance, people who were training to be dance teachers. Mm. Um, and so he asked if myself and my partner, um, Anthony Rudenka, sadly no longer with us, um, would go and do the, the masterclass. Um, and I got the princess sum of 10 shillings for doing that <laughs> I think I don't know what that is in new money but that, <laughs> that, that was my my first professional pay for <laughs> so I did the after, an afternoon with him and that was I mean quite an honor because I wasn't even officially 
in the company at that mm. point. Mm. Um, just new graduate doing a masterclass of what is a very challenging and well-known role with someone like John Field. So that, you know, looking back on it at the time, I was overwhelmed. Looking back on it now, I realise how amazing it was. But again, it was just another, oh, it, this is happening. You know, um, wow. <laughs> um, and, you know, that, that was... Yeah, it, it, it was a, I thought if, if I didn't go any further, that would have been fantastic. But, you know, one went into the corps de ballet and then you just start to earn your keep by churning out the swans and the various things and life just, that was it. And then one thing you, you sort of forget is that you work all day doing rehearsals. So you start with a class in the morning and then you rehearse and if you're not performing anywhere in the evening, then that's fine. You you finish at whatever time the, the, the call finishes. But if you are, well, then, I don't know what it's like now, but if you were performing in the evening, the latest you would finish is six o'clock or half past five, six o'clock, so that you had an hour to get ready before they called the half. So you could rehearse during the day and then perform in the evening. And of course, what you do in the evening is what you get paid for because mm -hmm. the public don't see what you're doing during the day. They see you on the stage. So no matter how tired you are, no matter how much you've been on the go, when that curtain goes up, that's what people are paid to see. They don't want to see a tired swan. They don't want to see a wilting fairy who's been on her toes all day. They want to see someone who's sparkling and, and transporting them into whatever world they're in. So from that point of view, you know, you are physically and mentally exhausted when you're, especially if you're touring. So it's, you're jumping in the deep end, especially at a very young age in, into that kind of life. And, and that's, that's it. That's just the circle. Rehearsals, performances, rehearsals, performances. And, and that's, I mean, that again goes back to the, you've got to love it. Because that's yeah. your life. There is nothing outside of ballet in that circle. You just, I mean, everything you said, there's, I, was there time to eat? It doesn't sound like there was time to eat. Oh, you'd always, you'd always get a, <laughs> there would, uh, I mean, after class, you'd get a small break of a big coffee break. Like, you'd always get an hour for lunch. There'd always be time to eat. Mm. Uh, but, you know, going back to when it was, when I was dancing, I was primarily with, a, a com with companies that toured. <sighs> so, um, with it, when it was with the Royal Bunny, we would always come and do a season at the Opera House in the summer because the, the main company, the, the first company, would go to the States. They were very oh, interesting. So we always got our slot and the chance at the Opera House. Yeah. Uh, and that was fine. Later on, when I left the Royal Ballet and went to the, the London Festival Ballet, we were primarily a touring company and we did not have a base in London at all. Interesting. So, um, you know, we were had to beg rehearsal studio space because we didn't have a home. Mm. So that that was difficult. Um, but uh, I don't know what it's like now. I mean, I, I think that I don't know what their schedules are like. I don't know whether they have time off between their, their major roles they're doing. Depends on the principles. I don't know how how they work it now. Mm. Uh, but uh, that that was life. It was pretty hard in those days. But as you say, you've got to love it. Yeah. Yeah. So so this yeah, opportunity with John Field comes up and I'm just thinking about you kind of being in those those formative years. And, you know, that's a it's a huge thing. So when you get that big break or you get that big moment, there's a lot of nerves, I can imagine, that are involved in that. And does do nerves for you do they push you and help you perform better or are they something you have to overcome before you can perform better um i don't think one get i never got nervous for any particular roles i did but then i wasn't a principal i was only a soloist although i did do a couple of principal roles um but sometimes i would be nervous for particular steps that I found difficult it, mm. with a solo or something I was doing, I would get nervous about that. And before the curtain go, we'll be practicing relentlessly, you know, that thing, no matter how many times I've done it. But I wouldn't necessarily be nervous about 
the, the whole role, but more about particular steps that I had a problem with. Um, so, uh, I mean, there, there are slightly butterflies, but once the music starts and you're going, there's no going back. You just have to, you, you launch yourself out and that's it. Mm. Um, but, uh, yes, I, I, it was more about tricky steps that I worried about. I, I was nervous about doing. Once, the, once that, in that solo, once that particular pirouette or that particular step's gone, oh, now I can join the rest of it. <laughs> Yeah. And, and kind of, and, and sort of enjoy the rest of it. I love that. I love that, that it was a joy for you to be out there. It wasn't a nerve wracking experience. And what about for auditions and, you know, when, when you're asked to do something, so John Field asked you to come and do this, was that, were you honored? And so, and it was a natural thing and you just did it and you'd been performing it. So you knew it, or were there nerves around those kinds of things as well? There were nerves because it was actually almost a one-on-two in front of an audience with somebody who was going to be my director when I joined mm-hmm. the company. Wow. And I'd just been dancing the role through the Royal Ballet School and performing it in front of an audience. So I knew it. But when you take it apart piece by piece, it's like when you see master classes for playing the cello or the piano or the violin, that you do a few bars and I'll get, that's like, just stop there. How about, or so for John, it will be, how about raise your head so, or you need to find this emotion. You were unpicking it the whole time. So it was quite emotional because it was an intense hour, hour and a half of unpicking this whole thing to uh, to really sort of find all the raw emotions. But at that young age, perhaps I didn't have, I hadn't any experience. Mm. <laughs> you haven't got any world experience to actually bring. Mm. Uh, so... Yeah, from that point, it was intense, but it was just a, a progression. It was just another thing. Oh, by the way, you're doing this. Mm. And just just did it. Um, I find this all intriguing because I think that's, um, and, and this might be, this is probably my personal biases that are coming in here and my personal experiences with performing. But I have never had those moments where getting on stage wasn't a big deal. Like it would, it, 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 it actually petrifies me. And having those big auditions petrify me and having, you know, someone famous critiquing me petrifies me. But it sounds to me like you had such confidence in your dancing. And I, 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 I would love to see you dance because I feel like you must have just had this natural ability <laughs> and that you actually were able to pull from that um, confidence because you knew you could do it. And as you said, there were some tricky moves that might be new or there was some unpicking and that was emotional. But the words that you're using around this are very much not to do with your ability to dance. You knew you could dance. You had that confidence. You just got up and did it and you were fabulous and got cast and, you know, brought into the the Royal Ballet um, uh, Company and, you know, being able to to just go and do and, and getting better and better. So it's, I find that fascinating that you had, you didn't have that in you. And I love that. I think that's fan, fantastic. <laughs> I surprised myself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I, the interesting thing is, you know, dancers, of course, spend hours on all day in front of full length mirrors in leotards and tights you're looking at yourself there's nothing that you do not see in the mirror that you don't self-criticize about mm. you can yourself you know does my bum look big in this is, is certainly a, a you know one of those sort of things in my position does this look right or that was an ugly position you're your biggest self-critic you don't need anyone else to tell you because that you're staring at yourself the whole time mm. um and you know, and you become aware of things that you do find difficult and, and aware of perhaps you can't raise your leg quite as high as someone else because you just physically can't do it, uh, you know, however hard you try. For some people, it's effortless. I struggled with certain things. Uh, I wasn't the best turned out person, so I struggled with that, you know, um, and that's fundamental, uh, dancing. But I had strong feet and ankles and I had fairly good, you know, pointing feet as you know good toes naughty toes I think we teach the children um but you know I have had other things going for me as well but you know all dancers you know I think particularly now when you talk a lot about body shaming and body image mm-hmm. one who does anything that has revolves that limited amount of clothing and spends all day looking at themselves 
is is really hard. Um, we're more aware of it now, I think, than um, we probably were in those days. But uh, yeah, and I mean, there's there's you know, it's it's infamous that there are lots of eating disorders and such within the ballet community and the dancing community in general, and. It is. You are literally wearing a second skin on top of your body in front of hundreds of people where you cannot have a wobbly belly. You cannot have a wobbly bum. It just it doesn't it doesn't work. And there are hundreds of other people behind you who don't have a wobbly belly and a wobbly bum who can do that role. And so there's there's a lot of pressure around that. And I think that's the reality. Again, you know, when you're pursuing these dreams, it is it is a lot of structure. It is a lot of work. And it's a lot of, of, of emotional, as you said, tax, but also that physical tax, that kind of that, that mental and mental health tax as well that comes with that, that I think sometimes people don't necessarily recognize. You have to be strong mentally in order to do these jobs. Yes. I mean, I, I was fortunate. I, I know that I, I do know some people that I've danced with in the company who suffered with weight issues. And were taken to one side and told to lose weight. And, you know, I, I was fortunate. I I had nothing. My, my father used to say, you tell the way I was facing because of my kneecaps. You know, I was I was like a beanpole. Yeah. I was fortunate. I, I did not have that kind of body shaming or, you know, I, and I'm, I'm not sure how I would have reacted to it. Um, and I know now, you know, a friend of mine does things of counselling for dancers and things like that because, it's, you know, Having been in the business, he's he's seen a need for it, mm-hmm. um, and and I'm and I'm sure that's right. But uh, I was fortunate; I didn't have any of that, so it's very difficult for me to sort of equate that kind of thing. But um, you know, yes, it, it's that intensity of staring at yourself all the time and looking at, and somebody perhaps saying, "Well, look in the mirror. Can you not see your arms higher than somebody else's?" Or which, because you, you can't do on stage, you just have to go by instinct. But um, mm-hmm. Yes, we should cover the mirrors. <laughs> yeah. Or not, because then how are you going to do swan leg? That's the big uh. question. <laughs> so uh, it's what's also really interesting in this is that you're going through puberty during this time. So you're, your body is changing. And I think this is one thing that's really interesting. And this is what I found in my, my ballet. I'm going to put this in air quotes because we're on <laughs> career. was um, that my body changed. And when I went through puberty, I no longer fit that ballerina mold. And I much more fit the musical theater dance (laughs) model. (laughs) There were curves where they did not need to be curves on ballet ballerinas. And so um, what, like for you, is that it, was that ever a fearful time for you? Was it, you know, you knew your body was going to change. It's a question mark. Did you think about that? Was that at all in your mind? It didn't change. It didn't, <laughs> my, yeah. my body did not change. No, no it wow. didn't. I yeah. was fortunate. Um, you know, I look back now and think, oh, what happened to that skinny thing? You know? <laughs> 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 if only, if only. Um, <laughs> But no, I, you know, I was very fortunate that my body did not sort of spout in different areas. So for me, I just carried on going. That, that was like a bean pearl. Um. But I think, I, I think, again, that's sort of that reality. Again, we're talking about dream, dream catchers and we're talking about the realities of dreams when you're following them. And there are certain things that happen that you can help make happen. You can be determined. You can do all the practice. You can do that. But there are other things that happen in life that make it so you can no longer pursue those dreams. You know, if you have, for instance, if you are someone who wants to um, be a pilot and actually you're colorblind, you can't do anything about that. No matter how much you train, you just, you can't change that. And so I think those limits that are on people when they, they find that and it destroys that bubble, it destroys that dream is really hard. But what I would encourage people to do is, is recognize those limitations and not try to not try to push through something that you're never going to be able to push through, push through if you can. But if you're never going to be able to push through, find a way to tangentially do that. So, Mm. you know, can you, is there something else you can do around aviation as opposed to being a specifically be a pilot? You know, is there something you can do around dance that doesn't necessarily mean you have to be a professional dancer or is there a different type of dance that you can get involved in? So I think it's that encouragement of recognizing the limitations that are there 
but also pushing through those ones that are self limitations, the ones that aren't, aren't being, aren't actual physical limitations. Yes. I agree. I, I'm, uh, when I was uh, surrounded by friends who were decided to get out of the profession, it provoked discussions about, well, what, what would you like to do if you decided to leave or you couldn't dance? Um, and actually what I was interested in was, was possibly doing sort of makeup for film or something like that would have interested me. I would, I think I would have veered on that way mm. because one of the courses that we had to do at the Royal Valley School was we had to learn to put on stage makeup. Yeah. It was part of the whole sort of kit, if you like, how to do our hair and put on the makeup. I believe now they, they don't actually put on their own makeup. I think the, the ballerinas that have it done for them and their hair, well, we always had to do our own. Mm. And of course that's adapted later on I can't believe we used to wear that heavy stuff on our face as we gradually progressed to using a lighter face and things like that but um <laughs> but it, it was part of the thing that we were taught how to use stage makeup so mm. I had an interest in that thinking you know that would be quite good to do so I think that was on the back burner mm. if I ever wanted to sort of get out but um it was it stayed on the back burner <laughs> <laughs> you can always resurrect that anytime die <laughs> um so we're we're kind of talking about the 17 18 year old self and as we all know it is no no secret that all dancers have a shelf life mm -hmm. um you know they're they're I, I don't know many who would ever dance past probably late 30s Hello. I would be quite a quite an old dancer maybe into your 40s if you were incredibly lucky mm -hmm. um so knowing that there was a shelf life, um, kind of what did you do? So you were saying you were saying you did you had this idea of doing makeup. Also, the other thing is we haven't talked anything about a personal life. It sounds like this was very much you were married to ballet. Well, was there was there a personal life that was happening in the background no, here? Actually, it's sad, isn't it? No, there wasn't. Um, not really. I mean, you know, one, one maybe you just hung out with ballet people because there was not an opportunity to meet other normal people somewhere it's just one of those things um not until really enter Simon my my husband um who <laughs> was a friend um well, how can I how can I work this out without it sounds too convoluted but I had a very close friend um in a ballet company her father and my husband's father were in the RAF together and she shared a house with another guy whose father was in the Air Force. And we were all going out for dinner one night. Simon was the stage door Johnny. I met him when we were performing in, in London. And after the performance, they took us dancing. And we'd just done two uh, Sleeping Beauties, I think, or something like that. But they took <laughs> us dancing. And um, I, I married him. <laughs> so You're a glutton for punishment. So, um, so when it came to actually um, decide it. He had nothing to do with ballet, um, nothing nothing whatsoever. He, his initiation into dance came from actually fetching up to perhaps watch a performance or coming to meet me after a performance and going out to eat. So that, that was his initiation in, into ballet. Um, but when it came to the chance, when I, I could see that I was not going to pursue, I was never going to be a principal dancer. I mean, I knew that. I was a soloist and I did, some good roles and uh, solo roles and things like that. Um, and I was happy up until the point when I thought, actually, things are changing. There were the, the sort of hierarchy in the company was changing, the structure was changing. And when you're married to someone who is not in the business and you're forever going on tour or you're mm. away or you're rehearsing, and Simon would say to me, oh, well, I've got to take some clients out. Are you free next week? And I said, I don't know. I don't get the call sheet until Friday. Oh, you know, wow. live your life like that. And suddenly ballet was now beginning to take, if you like, a slightly backward step and the marriage was coming slightly more to the fore. Um, and Simon, blessed him, always said to me, if you want to stop dancing, it has to be your decision because I do not want us to have an argument way down the line and you say to me, you made me give up my dancing. He said, it has to come from you. And, and he was absolutely right. And, and we went to, after we were married, we went to China. And while I was there, I decided that I was going to stop dancing because I, I felt that things were changing and there was probably no 
no, I really wanted to stay with what was going on. So um, I stopped. Yeah, I just handed my notice and uh, we did a we did a, a London season at the Coliseum, uh, Rudolph and Friends with Nirev. And um, I left after that. That was my, my final season. Your swan song, so to speak. Swan song, so to speak, yes. Yeah. I, yeah, I left. 1979, that was, yes. And and how old were you when you met Simon? Oh, crikey, 1979. I must have been late 30s. Yes, late 30s. Okay, so, I mean, this is a full career then. So by the time you left, you were in your late 30s at that point. Yeah. Okay, so you did a full, that's a full ballet career. I thought you were going to say, oh, we met when we were 20 and I was out when I was 21. No, no, no. no. Wow. So, um, yeah, so it was sort of, Yes, that was a good time to to stop and 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 concentrate on on being a married lady. You know? mm. and I think that's really interesting as well in terms of that kind of choice between the dream and the family. Because I've heard that from several people that I've interviewed around this chasing the dream is that people have said I'm married to my dream. It's all encompassing. It's my my hyper focus and. It's almost like you have to live the dream as your life and then mm. have your life after it. Mm. Um, and I, I would be, I'm going to be interested to see if I interview other people who that's not real for, who they're able to amalgamate those two, because I can also imagine if you're a professional ballerina and you're married and you want to have a child, how does that work? How you can't get a bump on stage. You can't be sick on stage. You can't have that changed body afterwards. I mean, I know, as you know, with the muscles, they go straight back when you're that strong, but you know, what does that look like? Yes, I, I, I could not imagine raising a child. I know that a lot of them do. Um, and in fact, we did have someone in the company who was pregnant and stopped. I mean, she was got to the point where they could let the tutor out no further and, and stopped. Um, but uh, that is very rare, that, that mm -hmm. is rare. It might be more so now. I don't. I don't know what the structure is now within the companies. But I could not imagine actually having children and carrying on dancing, not in that form. Now that would have been the time, possibly, if one had wanted to to teach. Mm, but as I, yes. earlier, I really did not have that inkling. A lot of people um, teach, uh, go and teach professionals. That they would teach it take a class for professionals um and i've got lots of people that i, I worked with at the time who were scattered across the, the globe in various guises who run ballet school and ballet companies um i have a friend who puts on cats around the world who's in the company dancer so you know they've all gone in various guises some have stayed within if you like the theater in various things um and, and others who, who walked away without a backward glance into their new lives. So, you know, my, my next career was being a, a, a wife and a homemaker and then a mother. And as we said earlier, the third career, the grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think a really important thing also is Simon not pushing you out and saying very deliberately, this is your choice and you go when you are ready. And of course, you know, I want you home. I have some stuff I've got, you know, I've got client dinners I want you to go to. I'd love to start a family. And I can imagine at that time as well. So we're talking 1979. If you're in your late thirties and you haven't had kids by then, I imagine there's societal pressure as well around that. I mean, I imagine there was something around, you know, okay, what, when's this going to start for you die? You know, what's, what's the story here? Yeah, I mean, and I didn't, um, you know, having children, I didn't fall pregnant easily. That 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 was another problem. Um, mm. uh, you know, you, you know, you're starting to think, well, stop, we'll, right, we'll have family now. Yep. And it doesn't, for a lot of people, it doesn't happen. Uh, um, and, you know, for a while we thought maybe it wouldn't happen. Mm. Uh, so I got a couple of cats and it did happen. Um, <laughs> That's all you needed, just a couple of cats. That's where my love to the couple of animals. Exactly. Um, and you know, then when we had Tim, our eldest son, it was kind of well, this is this is wonderful. You know, if that's the only one, that would be great. And then sadly, between him and uh, having Andrew, um, I had several miscarriages, and so we began mm. to think it would be one. Um, 
and I went through various testing and things like that. And I can remember Simon being away uh, on business and I just lie there and we'd, we'd be become Christians at that point. Um, you know, it's always been there, but we had re affirmed our faith when Tim was born saying um, we, uh, we would needed to give thanks because this was a gift which we didn't think we'd have. Hmm. And I remember lying there with Simon away and I just thought, you know, Lord, I can't do this anymore. If you want me to have another one, I, I lay it all in your hands, and that's fine. And we we both settled down. We both felt a weight left our shoulders and carried on with our lives. And then I can remember saying to Simon one day, I can't get into these trousers. And I was three months pregnant. So... <laughs> And along comes Andrew. And along comes Andrew. And, and Andrew sort of is a theatre bod. He's, he's been in a band and he's done a couple of seasons on television and, and uh, very much into music and performing and, uh, and being a clown and things like that. So that, that it's obviously <laughs> passing down somewhere. If, if not the delicate dancing, it's... Uh, Getting it's on stage. You know, the drumming, but uh, it's there. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Oh, Di, this has been spectacular. And I just, I want to thank you for, for your honesty and sort of talking about um, the dedication that's required. And, and also, I think just that knowing yourself and knowing what you wanted to do and, and having that knowledge. Actually, I want to ask you one question before we get to our last two questions. Can you share just for our, our common listener who are not very familiar with the ballet, what's the difference between a soloist and a principal? Right. A soloist would do... Um, if you've got a ballet, say, uh, like at Swan Lake and you've got all the fairies, a soloist will dance a solo fairy. You know, they'll, they'll dance things like that. Um, a principal will dance the major roles like the swan in Swan Lake or Aurora in Sleeping Beauty. And you can have different grades. You can have a second soloist and a first soloist. You usually have, um, in my day, we had the corps de ballet, which are all the swans, a corophée that will do... A little bit more, maybe you'll be launched slightly into solo roles. A second soloist, first second soloist who's just been promoted up, first soloist, and sometimes first soloists will do small leading roles, mm. and then you go on to your fully fledged. But that that was the hierarchy. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah. And, and when got, you when yeah go on where were, where did you where did you end up? I ended up a soloist, um, and I knew I would not go any further I mm. mean I, I I knew I didn't have that technique and quite that talent mm. the desire was there but I knew that technically I did not have that little extra to to do that um and by that time I was comfortable with that mm. I had achieved a lot and I'd still achieved my dream yeah I was doing things that people said they would never do be a typist you know so <laughs> Things that would not bring you the joy that ballet brought you. <laughs> and and did you did you dance in China? That was the other question I wanted to ask. Did you dance yes, in China? You did. We did. Yes, we did. Um, we practically broke the company because the arts council at the time wouldn't give us any money to go, so we had to find funding because we had to take our orchestra oh, because wow. at that time they. Um, it was just after the Gang of Four had been brought into disrepute. So China was very much still, bicycles, very much a closed area. We were the only Western people there, but they knew Beryl Gray, who was our artistic director. She had danced in China mm. and they asked for her. And of course, being the director, the whole company went and we were there for two weeks in uh, Beijing and Shanghai. Amazing. And it was an, a tremendous experience. It really was um, quite quite interesting to, to go around and, you know, just people knew who we were because it was of these Westerners. You know, we went to look at something and you turn around. It was like the Red Sea parting because they were all crowding behind you and oh, pointing and, <laughs> you know, sort of celebrity status. Celebrities, yes, <laughs> massive celebrities. <laughs> Very obvious celebrities as well. <laughs> <laughs> very hospitable and um it was it was a great privilege to go um uh, and we did get it paid for in the end <laughs> well done well done and what was your what was your favorite role um that you got to got to play my favorite role well i i think giselle because that that sort of started the the ball rolling and although yeah. i did that 
as a student and in this masterclass, I did dance in the court of ballet there and one of the two soloist roles and one of the main principal roles, actually, just thinking about it. Now. So I think Giselle has a special place and possibly Rudolph's uh, Romeo and Juliet. That was fun oh, to be part of. So, wow. Yeah. And do you, do you still go to the ballet? Do you enjoy it? I, I, I don't enjoy it as much. I, 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 I do occasionally go, but I... Yeah, I don't know. I, if it happens to be or a, a friend of mine says, do you want to come? I'll go and I enjoy it. But I wouldn't necessarily choose to go and see it. Mm. Uh, do you want to storm the stage and just rip off the costume and throw it on yourself and do it? Is that part of the reasoning? No, the body says. I just had tutu on. I just have this recurring dream of, of somebody's literature's plague and I still can't find my point shoes oh. and I'm racing around the theatre trying to find them. I don't quite know what that would be interpreting as. But. I know. Oh, my goodness. I love it. I love it. Um, so we, we're going to have to draw this to a close. And I just looked at the time. I actually can't believe we've spoken for an hour, which is incredible. Um, but I need to ask you our two final questions. Uh, the first of which is, um, along this journey, what did you discover about yourself? Um, that I did have an inner strength that I didn't know I had. I think I, some, I do have moments when I have, well, I have a lot of moments where I, I'm very self-doubting in my own abilities. But then I have to look back over what I did and realise, actually, that's not the case because I wouldn't have got to this point if I hadn't had that, that inner strength then, um, which, of course, came from my parents, as you said, said before, supporting that bubble gave me that strength. So um, I, I would think that, yes. And I, I think one of the things you said before we started was going back and sort of looking through what you what you've done to remind yourself of what you've done kind of reminded you of what you did and all these incredible things that you did. And I think so often when you're caught up in your job, because this was your job, you move forward day to day and you do some incredible things along the way. We talked about in a, in a previous episode, we talked about looking at your CV and keeping your CV fresh. Mm. And part of doing that is when you finish something incredible, write it down somewhere. So that you can go back and remember what it is so that when you're interviewing or when you're you're freshening up your CV, you have that in your back pocket. And yes. I think it's it's quite an interesting thing because you do, you just move forward and not often do you spend time kind of giving yourself a pat on the back for all the amazing things that you did. <laughs> so I think I thought that was that was one of my big takeaways that um, that you shared was actually look back and think about the stuff that you did and take some time to reflect on that because it will, it'll help you move forward as well because it'll give you that knowledge that you've done something before that you've gotten through and you've done some pretty incredible things and you can do the next incredible thing absolutely yes and what would you say is the best piece of advice that you've ever received or heard or read somewhere um that 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 all things are possible you know if you have an opportunity you can try it that there's nothing to stop you trying hmm um, so, uh, you know, as we've discovered as well as throughout our chat, you know, you can always go on a sideways journey apart from, you know, if it's not your focal point, there's a way around that. So there's nothing lost if you don't try. Mm. Come back to the what ifs, don't you? Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think I like that correction that you said, instead of saying everything is possible, saying there's nothing to stop you trying. I think that is that's a, that was a brilliant micro correction there because there is, there's nothing to stop you from trying and you'll learn something in that trying. You'll learn something either in the failure or the success. You'll learn something in the journey. You'll learn something in the process. You know, people talk about starting their own companies and learning something from a failed company. They learn how to not run a company. <laughs> you know, they, they learn what they need to put into place. Or yeah. people that go and and an audition and it's not a good audition. You know, what was it? You, if you've never auditioned for, before, you don't know what that feels like. You don't know what it's like to stand on stage with a piano or with an orchestra or with whatever it is. And are you with a group of people auditioning? Are you auditioning solo? How many people are sitting in the audience? Are they talking to each other? Are they focused on you? If you've never done that before, you walk on stage, you have to do it for a first time. And if you fall flat on your face, 
you at least know the next time you walk in, you have a bit of a better idea of what that's going to feel like. So I love that, that there's nothing to stop you trying. Just go try it. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And if you don't have any money, go stand in front of the council and ask for it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, watch me. (laughs) I love it. I love it. I love the tenacity of the 15 year old in you just going off and being like, yeah, you guys need to pay for this. Oh, Diane, it's an absolutely fantastic speaking with you today. And um, for people, I I know that everything's online now, but is there anything online that people can find from your dancing days under um, Diane Hunwin? Is that something people Um, could find? Well, I do know for a fact that there is on YouTube, London Festival Ballet's um, recorded for television, a nutcracker. And it's still on YouTube. Um, and it's uh, it was it was filmed up in Manchester, Manchester, yes, uh, Birmingham, Birmingham. Um, but it is on YouTube. So and, it's, and what role what role are we looking for for you in that uh, one? And one of the flowers. Flowers, um, okay. Yes, one of the flowers in the last act. So you skim through to the last act, but it's quite a good production. So um, yes, <laughs> excellent. All right. Well, I know what I'll be doing with my afternoon now. So thank you for that. <laughs> Oh, Diane, thank you so much for your time today. And I know I learned loads. Um, and I think there's so many amazing takeaways from here. And I just, I love that final piece of advice that there's nothing to stop you trying. That was fantastic. And, and well done for you for being a dream catcher. Thank you very much. Lovely to talk to you. Thank Lovely you. to chat with you as well. It was great to have you on today, Diane. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Please join us next week when I speak to an award-winning photojournalist, Peter Nichols, about being a dream catcher. If you're looking for an executive coach or want to get in touch, check out my website, kljconsulting.co.uk, or email me on the Undiscovered You podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to follow, subscribe, and like. Please do comment below, and I hope you're one step closer to discovering the Undiscovered You.